Good morning. It is certainly a privilege to be here with you and to fill in for Joe as he's taking care of a lot of stuff today with all the festivities to, to honor and celebrate what the Lord has done in and through Steve's ministry. So before we go ahead and, and jump into our study, let's just go ahead and pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us in our time of need here as we open up your word and seek to, to learn from it. And we recognize that is not something that we can do uh, in and of our own power. We need you. We need your, your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes, to unstop our ears, to cause us to see you in your word. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that you'd work in our hearts and incline us to love what we see and be quick to obey it. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, for those of us who are Christians, there's an amazing thing that's taken place within us. We are the recipients of God's grace and kindness. Steve's going through the book of Ephesians in the evenings, and in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, Paul lays out some of the richness of the blessings that we've received in Christ. He talks about us being chosen by God before the world began. In eternity past, we were the recipients of God's choosing power. He's adopted us into his family, making us his children. He's truly our father, a father who is good and kind and loving and seeks our ultimate good in all things. And Paul goes on in verse 7 of Ephesians 1 to say that we have been redeemed. We have received the forgiveness of our sins. And though we truly have been redeemed and been bought back and been justified in the sight of God, Paul reminds us in the opening verse of chapter 2 of Ephesians that this was not always the case. Before we knew Christ, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.1, we were dead. We weren't just in a tough spot or, or, or some type of sticky situation. We were dead, spiritually dead without any ability or desire to make ourselves spiritually alive. But Jesus said in Luke 18.27 that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Though we could not make our dead selves alive, God has made us alive in and through Jesus Christ. He completed the miraculous work of spiritual regeneration whereby we've been given a new heart, new desires, a new inclination in life. We are no longer under the, the bondage and power of sin. We're now under the power of the Spirit, and we are inclined to love and follow and serve God. And because the Lord has accomplished this work of salvation, because He's chosen us, we'll no longer receive the punishment we rightly deserve due to our sin and rebellion against Him. We have wickedly rebelled against the Lord, but when God looks at us, He no longer sees the wickedness and sinfulness that still remains, but He sees the beauty and the perfection of His own Son. And there are so many staggering aspects to our salvation and our current state as believers in Christ. But this aspect of redemption is just one of the most amazing, I think. The fact that we truly have been redeemed and bought back and transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's Son. And God's redemptive work is painted all over the pages of Scripture. But there is one Old Testament book that highlights it in a unique way, and that's the book of Exodus. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to turn there. Exodus primarily gets its name for being the book that contains the historical account of God removing his people from Egypt, delivering them from, from their Egyptian bondage. 
And as I said, God's aspect and works of redemption are found all throughout the Bible. We could look at countless New Testament passages that show us God's redemptive work and redemptive power. But we're going to look here at the book of Exodus. And I think there are some really important reasons why we should do so and why we need to do so. So before we get into our text this morning, I just want to give you four reasons I think studying a book like Exodus is incredibly profitable and absolutely necessary. First, Exodus is the Word of God. Exodus is the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. Exodus is breathed out by God and profitable for us. The second reason we should study Exodus is that in studying Exodus, we will know God better. It'll help us to know God. In this book, we're confronted with the Lord in a powerful way. You don't have to turn there, but in Psalm 66, we witness a song of praise written to the Lord. And this is what the psalmist says, starting in verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Why should we praise him? What about his deeds are awesome? What makes him so powerful that his enemies come cringing to him? In verse 5, the author says this, Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever. The psalmist is speaking of the Exodus event. The event where God demonstrated this awesome power. And in response, we are to praise him. The third reason we should study a book like Exodus is that in doing so, we'll better understand God's work of redemption. We'll better understand his work of redemption. Every human being that's ever lived, apart from Jesus himself, is absolutely wicked and depraved at their core. We've rejected the Lord and his word. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of his standard of perfection. And we all deserve, in light of that, the wrath of God. But the gospel of God shines the brightest light upon our dark sentence. It offers us hope. The good news of the gospel is that though we deserve to be punished, we don't have to endure that punishment. Someone else has endured that punishment in our place. And if we're, if we put our trust in Christ, we can, we can be sure that that punishment, we won't experience that punishment. And Exodus so vividly points to this work of God's redemption. Listen to these words from from one well-known Old Testament scholar. Where do we turn in our Bible for our understanding of redemption? We cannot simply turn first to the New Testament. If you'd asked a devout Israelite in the Old Testament period, are you redeemed? The answer would have been a, a most definite yes. And if you asked, how do you know? You would have been taken aside to sit down somewhere while your friend recounted a long and exciting story, the story of the Exodus. For indeed, it is the Exodus that provided the primary model of God's idea of redemption, not just in the Old Testament, but even in the New. There are so many aspects of of Israel's redemption we find in Exodus that correlate so closely with our aspect of redemption, the redemption God's works for us. 
And the fourth reason we need to study Exodus is that it'll help us have a better understanding of mission. What our mission is, what, what, what our purpose is in the world. There are thousands of mission agencies and an untold number of missionaries. There are opportunities to take short-term mission trips and long-term mission trips. And there are agencies that focus on missions to, to men and women and the orphans and, and widows and medical missions. And all those can be very good and honoring and beneficial. But our primary understanding of mission shouldn't come from agencies or even from other missionaries, but our primary understanding of mission should be founded in God's Word. And the book of Exodus helps us in that. Most people, when we think of missions and texts in the Scripture, we return to Matthew 28, right? The Great Commission. And certainly that's an, that's an outstanding passage and one that needs to be properly understood. But as one pastor stated, if that's where we start, we're at a loss. He goes on to say, The mission of the church does not begin in the Great Commission. It begins well before this important text in the Old Testament. Here we see God concerned about physical injustice as well as spiritual deliverance. We need to be people whose understanding of mission is founded first and foremost in God's redemptive work laid out in the Scripture. So with that said, if you're not already there, make your way to Exodus 1. We'll be looking there this morning. Let me go ahead and read. I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 1. It says this, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now it's vital to mention here from the start that the book of Exodus is not meant to be read or interpreted as some standalone book. It's part of a larger collection. And primarily it's part of the, the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, should be read together. These opening verses of Exodus serve as an introduction and really draw our attention back to the book of Genesis. If we pick up here, we would have questions if we don't understand how Genesis ended. Why are the people of Israel in, in Egypt? What are they doing there? Why was Joseph already there? Why has, has Jacob brought his other sons and their families there? Well, to be reminded of that, we need to, we need to remember how Genesis concluded. First, Joseph was already in, in Egypt because his brothers had sold him into slavery. His father loved Joseph, Genesis 37 says, more than his other brothers, and that, that made them upset. And that wasn't it. Joseph also then told his brothers of a, a dream, a vision that he had, whereby he essentially saw his brothers bowing down to him and, and worshiping him, and, and, and that made them a little bit more upset. And in light of that, they wanted to be rid of their brother. And so they sold him into slavery, and he was taken to Egypt. And then later on, Jacob brings his other sons and their families as a result of a great famine that occurred. And, and they went to Egypt in, in search for food. 
And there they, they come in contact with Joseph, and Joseph has risen to this great position of power and authority, and he makes provision for his family and gives them food to eat and a place to dwell, and th- things seem to be going well. Things seem to be going well there. And we look at the last few verses I just read from Exodus 1, verses 5 through 7 says, when, when they arrived, the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons in total. But verse 7 goes on to say, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. When Jacob and his sons had originally transitioned to Egypt, there were just 70, a relatively small group of people. But we're told after that, the people grew. They were fruitful. They multiplied. This language is very familiar to the command that God gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, to be fruitful and multiply. We read here in verse 7 of Exodus 1 that, that the Israelites were faithful to do that. And it says the land was filled with them. The land was filled with them. These first seven verses provide us an introduction where the book of Exodus takes place, the people involved. But I want to continue reading. I want to look at verses 8 through 22. I recognize that's a bit of a a lengthy section, but I think these verses are going to be helpful to see in their appropriate context. So if you'd follow along with me as we read verses 8 to 22. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work of the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. There are so many things happening here, but this morning we're just going to look at two ways in which Pharaoh sought to destroy Israel. Two ways in which Pharaoh sought to destroy Israel. And the first was through slavery. The first was through slavery. Verse 8 starts out saying, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. In his commentary in the book of Exodus, Pastor Philip Riken notes, With these ominous words, Israel's sojourn among the Egyptians turned from prosperity to persecution. What had once seemed like a promising place to grow into a godly nation became a house of bondage 
a wasteland of backbreaking torment. Now, why was this the case? Well, we must remember that by the time we reach Exodus 1.8, Joseph and all those of the original generation had died off. Quite a bit of time has passed here. And while Joseph was alive, he was in a great position of authority, and the people of Israel enjoyed great prosperity under him. But there's a new, a new realm that's began. A new dynasty has started. And this current pharaoh over Egypt did not know Joseph, did not feel any need to care for Joseph's descendants. In fact, he viewed them as a problem. It says in verses 9 to 10, he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. From the very beginning of creation, God gave the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. God gave that instruction to Adam and Eve at the start, but that applied going forward. And here we see Pharaoh is not pleased with what has taken place. He's not happy that the Israelites have, have, have been fruitful, have multiplied. And he seeks to put a stop to that. And slavery is the first means he uses to seek to destroy the nation of Israel. But there's a deeper issue here. Pharaoh isn't just being hostile toward God's people. He's being hostile towards God. He's being hostile towards God. His hostility is directed towards God himself who commanded that his people multiply. Right here at the start of the book, we witness a battle that will continue throughout. It's not primarily between Israel and Pharaoh, or even a battle going forward between Moses and Pharaoh. It's primarily a battle between Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and God, king of kings. And this is seen here at the start of Exodus as Pharaoh is clearly against God's plan for his people. And that will only be seen in greater detail as the story unfolds. Verses 11 to 14 give us some, some details concerning the slavery that they endured. And notice just the harsh and brutal nature of, of the language used here. Starting in verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work of the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. The language paints a picture for us of just how bad it was. Verse 11, they were afflicted with heavy burdens. Verse 12, they were oppressed. Verse 13, they were worked ruthlessly. Verse 14, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This, this was awful. It was absolutely awful. These conditions were harsh and oppressive and brutal. This is the kind of injustice that Israel endured at the hands of the Egyptians. But in spite of the fact that they endured this harsh and brutal slavery, God was in total control of it the entire time. He was in total control. And though he allowed his people to be treated unjustly, there is, is no way to say that God is unjust. He's absolutely just. I just want to mention a couple verses. You can write these down as references. You won't turn there, but Deuteronomy 10, 18 and 19. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner. Psalm 99, 4. The king in his might loves justice. Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. 
Psalm 146, 7 through 9, God executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. God is a just God who cares for his people and loves his people and works on their behalf but that doesn't always mean he's going to remove them from the difficulty. He's not always going to remove the oppressive treatment. Sometimes he allows it to continue, and he did in Exodus. Now, why would a God who's, who's kind and merciful and just allow his people to be so, treated so harshly? I think there's probably a number of reasons, but I think there's one that's clear in the text. One that's clear in the text. Verse 12 says, that as the Israelites began to endure the harsh Egyptian slavery, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Pharaoh sought to weaken the Israelites. He sought to destroy the Israelites through slavery, and God had a different plan in mind. God had a different plan in mind. He used the harsh and brutal slavery to grow his people, to increase his people. Listen to these words from from Charles Spurgeon, he sheds light on this situation. He writes, In all probability, if they'd been left to themselves, they would have been melted and absorbed into the Egyptian race. They were content to be in Egypt and quite willing to be Egyptianized. To a large degree, they began to adopt the superstitions and idolatries and iniquities of Egypt. And these things clung to them to such a terrible extent that we can easily imagine that their heart must have turned aside very much toward the sins of Egypt. Yet all the while, God was resolved to bring them out of that evil connection. They were to be a separate people. They could not be Egyptians or live permanently in Egypt, for Jehovah had chosen them for himself and meant to make an abiding difference between Israel and Egypt. The, the, the wicked and ruthless oppression the Israelites were forced to endure was ultimately a part of the sovereign plan of God to bring them out of Egypt, to make them a separate people for himself, to establish them, to make an abiding difference between them and all the other surrounding nations. They were not to be Egyptians. They were God's people. And he was using this awful situation to bring about his good plan. The worse they were treated, the more they increased, thus foiling the plan of Pharaoh. And as the people continued to grow, Pharaoh realized his plan, it wasn't working not as he had intended, slavery wasn't reducing the population. In fact, ironically, it had increased the population. And so Pharaoh seeks to destroy the nation of Israel a second way, and that was through slaughter. Verses 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. The message of, of these two verses is loud and clear. Kill all the baby boys. Right? Kill the boys. Slavery was not slowing the growth of the Israelite population the way that Pharaoh had intended. And so now he's ordering the murder of Israelite male children upon birth. Things go from, from bad to worse as this mandate is given to these Hebrew midwives. But thank the Lord that there were two women in Egypt who feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. 
Though they had not yet received the Ten Commandments, they knew God. They feared God. Verse 17 says this, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They directly disobeyed the clear order of Pharaoh. And this is exactly what God's people should do when we're ordered or commanded to do something that would directly violate what God has told us to do. Our loyalty ultimately is not to any man, but to God. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles were instructed not to teach in the name of Jesus, and they replied in verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And though these women certainly did fear Pharaoh, they feared the king of Egypt. It's evident they feared the king of kings even more. Though Christ had not yet spoken the words of Matthew 10:28, which says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. They were living in light of that teaching. They were living in accordance with that teaching. And so it's, it's evident to Pharaoh that after some time, they haven't heeded his message. He sees the increased population, and, and so he approaches them and says to them, these two midwives, in verse 18, he says, Why have you done this and let the male children live? Why have you done this and let them live? And the, the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Pharaoh questions them. They respond. There are many scholars who are quite harsh toward these women, accusing them of sin by directly lying to Pharaoh. Augustine concluded the midwives were guilty of of deceit. John Calvin stated in his commentary that the lying of the midwives was reprehensible and displeasing to God. And those are brilliant minds and fathers of the faith. I'm not entirely sure, though, that we have enough information in the text to accuse them of, of a blatant attempt to deceive, but I am confident that in order to know whether what they did was right or wrong, we need to look at how God responded to them. And so we see in verse 20, it says, So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 21, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. It's evident that the midwives acted in a way that the Lord deemed honorable because he blessed them in light of it. The Lord brings blessing for obedience, and and here he blesses them, he richly blesses them for what they did. But in light of God's blessing, Pharaoh was certainly not pleased with the midwives. He was not pleased at all. His anger was kindled. The slavery that he sought to to inflict didn't work. This this plan to, to slaughter the baby boys didn't work. And so he goes on and says in verse 22, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter shall live. And he didn't just command that to the Hebrew midwives. He commanded that to all his people. He gave this green light to murder the Israelite male children. Remember, he he was trying to weaken and destroy the nation of Israel. Slavery didn't work. Killing them didn't work. And now he goes to this statewide, nationwide command to kill all these sons. And, and there's a pattern established here. Every time Pharaoh seeks to intensify the persecution against God's people, God offers protection. He brings prosperity in the midst of the persecution. He offers protection in the midst of persecution. If Pharaoh seeks to, 
to destroy them, and God makes them stronger. Verse 11, he set taskmasters over them. Verse 12, they grew stronger. Though they were oppressed, they multiplied and spread abroad. Verse 16, Pharaoh says, kill all the baby boys. Verse 20, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. Verse 22, every son who's born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, but every daughter you shall let live. We'll have to wait till the next opportunity. I have to be here to, to look at how that plays out in Exodus chapter 2, but, but God does work that once again for the prosperity of his people. And we see in the text of Exodus chapter 1 that, again, every time Pharaoh sought to weaken or destroy the nation, God protected them. God brought about prosperity in the midst of that persecution. And doesn't this just have direct application for our lives today? The church of God has always been under attack. The people of God have always been under attack. And that's no different today. It wasn't new in the book of Exodus, and it continues today. The culture, the society we live in, the world we live in, is so actively opposed to and against the biblical principles that the church stands for. We're not accepting of sinful lifestyles. We're not tolerant of every action. And on a very practical, personal level, you may experience persecution from, from family members, from, from co-workers, from neighbors who are opposed to God, right? Who are against God and his work in the world. But let me offer some encouragement to you. The people of God have always undergone persecution. And when persecution rises to great heights, we can be confident God is at work. Just as he was with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 1. Let me offer in conclusion one lengthy quote from Charles Spurgeon about the pattern of persecution and growth within the church. This is what Spurgeon says. Whenever there has been a great persecution raised against the Christian church, God has overruled it, as he did in the case of Pharaoh's oppression of the Israelites, by making the community increase even more. The early persecutions in Judea promoted the spread of the gospel. Hence, when after the death of Stephen, the disciples were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, preaching the word, so too when Herod stretched forth his hand and killed James, what came of it? Luke tells us the word of God grew and multiplied. Those terrible and bloody persecutions under the Roman emperor by no means stayed the progress of the gospel, but strangely enough, seemed to press forward for the crown of martyrdom. The church probably never increased at a greater ratio than is when her foes were most fierce to assail her and most resolute to destroy her. The Reformation never went on so prosperously as when it was most vigorously opposed. You shall find in any individual church that wherever evil men have conspired together and a storm of opposition has burst forth against the saints, the heart of the Lord has been moved with compassion. Listen to these words. Be patient then, my brethren, amidst the persecutions or trials you may be called upon to bear, and be thankful that they are so often overruled for the growth of the church, for the spread of the gospel, and the glory and honor of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful, so thankful, for an opportunity to study your word. We're thankful for a place to meet together and, and be able to encourage one another. And Lord, it's just, it's just your kindness to us. It is. And Father, we pray as persecution occurs, Lord, there might be individuals in here who are experiencing a greater degree than others. Would you offer great comfort and encouragement to them? 
Lord, would you remind us that when it's hard to see you at work, we can trust that you are at work. Lord, when it's hard for our, for our eyes to imagine how you could possibly be at work in, in the midst of dark situations, would you help us to cling to your promises and trust and rest in the fact that we know you're at work. We know you're a just God who cares for and loves us. Lord, would you help us to remain resolved to follow you no matter what, what you might bring to us, Lord, no matter what we might endure in this life. Father, we're thankful for your word. Pray that it would make a lasting impact in our hearts. Pray that we would not be quick to forget it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.